14. Um, I'm going to do a very small rearranging here just to, to uh, look at the beginning of chapter, or verse 12. So put, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and then he continues on. I'll, I'll rephrase it just simply. Uh, you are God's chosen ones. You are holy and beloved. Therefore, put on, and then he continues on there. And the reason I want to do that is because, um, for me, I, I sometimes kind of like blaze by the like little comma, the parenthetical comma off sections when I'm reading scripture. I'm just like, okay, here's the command, what to do. But um, Paul is rooting us right here. He's rooting the Colossians and saying, if you are in Christ, God has chosen you and he has already set you apart to make you holy. And, and it's not just a dry thing because he's saying you are beloved by God. It's the same word that he used to say of the kingdom of his beloved son. It's uh, agape, um, which people talk about being godly love. Pastor Ken would say um, that agape love is um, desiring God's best for someone and applying yourself to bringing that about. And so um, Paul is saying here, God loves you the way that he loves Jesus Christ. So he's not merely putting up with you until you improve yourself. He's not here treating you carelessly. He's not leaving you in a corner saying that you are um, you're kind of like the, the, the redheaded stepchild of God's family. He's saying that you, um, even if you are mistreated, ignored, disliked, and disdained by other people, you have a Father in heaven who loves you like the Son who sits at his right hand because you are in Christ. And so this is what theologians call union with Christ, but ultimately what matters is that if you are a Christian, you receive all the benefits and the love that Christ receives because you are in him. And so um, I think that this really empowers us to then um, feel the importance of these commands that come forward. Um, uh, so it's for this reason that actually in verse 14, he says, and above all, put on love. So all the things that he says to put on, he says actually above all, put on love. Uh, John Calvin says that above could be over and above or before all these things. So this love is the primary, um, uh, whoops, sorry, uh, the, the, the primary virtue that Christians should be putting on when interacting with one another. And it flows uh, from the security of knowing that the love of our Father is a certainty. And I think this also helps us um, from from me spending too much time diving into each of the individual words of compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, because ultimately each of these is a subcomponent of what Christ-like love looks like in action. So consider what uh, the familiar words of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6 um, say here, and you can compare them. Um, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Um, so in here, you kind of see a mix of, he's saying the opposite of uh, things that are compassionate, 
kind, um, humble, patient, um, but he's also saying positive things, and love is all of these things. And so Paul is saying to the Colossians, when you are in the world, um, and he tells them to put this off in previous verses, you may have been angry, you may have been slanderous, a liar, prideful, and malicious. Uh, you may have once lived this way because often the world would reward you because lying about someone to get ahead um, is, is often approved of. Um, but you do not need to live this way anymore. You do not need to. Um, you are now a subject of King Jesus, and so there's nowhere higher you can ascend to. And so you should live rightly and walk in a manner worthy of your king. Um, uh, the, so the, the thing that uh, is worth noting here is that none of these virtues, um, you could call them fruits of God's spirit. If you look at Galatians where it talks about fruits of the spirit, um, there's huge overlap between this list um, here and um, in Galatians. But um, the, the, none of these virtues are things that you can express alone. You can think to yourself, oh, I'm, um, I'm pretty humble, I'm pretty patient, uh, until you start having to interact with other people. <laughs> um, um, and so that's why Paul says that love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Um, interestingly, perfect harmony could be is using the same word that's used as mature later in um, uh, or later and earlier in this book. And the word binds is the same word that's translated ligaments when talking about Christians being part of the body or the church of which Christ is the head in chapter 2. Uh, in other words, just as a body doesn't function without ligaments connecting one another, um, uh, the church does not function at its best without love connecting and being expressed between one another. And so Paul's argument is that the folks who are claiming that they have these individual, personalized worship experiences are not actually greater Christians. They're people who are not even expressing some of the basic um, the, the basic qualities of what it means to be a Christian at all. And so expressing love comes from and builds maturity in the body of believers. Um, like I was saying, uh, it's very easy to say, well, I am loving, I'm compassionate, I'm kind, and I'm gentle, I'm patient, until you have to um, live shoulder to shoulder uh, with people. So I, I can speak personally. I didn't know how much humility I lacked until I got married. Um, I thought I was a pretty patient person until I had children. Um, and uh, sharing our lives with others causes us to see our sin and, and theirs as well much more clearly. Whereas isolating ourselves um, has a way of blinding us to our sins and then we use the excuse that, well, it's hard to be with other people because they're difficult or needy or toxic. And Paul understands that's how life is together and what's going to happen because we are all sinners. And so what should our reaction be to it? And that verse 13 is really um, showing us what the attitude that we must have. And it's one of bearing with one another and forgiving. Um, Paul has previously written that the Colossians were alienated and they are hostile in mind doing evil deeds um, toward God and toward one another. 
Um, but the Lord Jesus reconciled them through his death. That's Colossians 1, 21 and 22. So notice the quality of forgiveness then that, that God has extended. They were doing all these things, rebelling against God, but God forgave them and reconciled and saved them. And so this is the same type of forgiveness, Paul is saying, that Christians should extend to one another. It's not just, I'm going to come to you um, and I'm, I'm willing to forgive if you give me a satisfactory enough apology. It's actually proactively forgiving or being eager to forgive prior to receiving that apology. And so um, that doesn't um, mean that we don't come and correct people. Um, perhaps we do need to have someone um, apologize to us, but it does change, it need to change our posture when we do seek for. Uh, seek uh, repentance from someone. Our first inclination should be towards forgiving them, not continuing to hold our complaints against them over their heads. Um, furthermore, bearing with one another uh, means that we don't need to bring every single issue before someone uh, when, when we are confronting them in their sin. Um, if you imagine if God had saved you and then he said, here's this long list of everything that needs to be corrected right now, you would be left feeling overwhelmed and not know where to start. Um, so similarly, uh, when we're bearing with one another, uh, you might consider, if you do need to confront someone with sin, just coming with the thing that is most pertinent um, because um, just as God is patient, loving, kind, and gentle, and he's bearing with you even now as you struggle in your current sins, he doesn't confront you with them all immediately. This is a model for how we can um, bear with one another. Um, and so what Paul is calling the Colossians to do here is simultaneously um, more ordinary and more supernatural than the people who talk about, oh, I'm going in and I'm having these visions and I have these rituals for setting myself apart. Um, it's a lot more mundane to talk about um, kindness, compassion, meekness, uh, or gentleness, um, humility, patience, and forgiveness until you realize that being called to do that every single day is actually extremely difficult. And so that's why Paul prayed in chapter 1, verse 11, that we read earlier, that the Colossians would be strengthened with all power. Um, Perhaps today you're sitting here and you're worn out and spent simply from getting to church this morning. And so the effort to go and encourage, show love and compassion towards someone else feels too daunting. Perhaps uh, there's someone in our church body who you feel has not earned your forgiveness. Perhaps your sibling, if you're a child, really annoys you and you have a very hard time being patient with them. Or um, your child has tested your limits all week and you're struggling right now not to snap at them. Paul would tell you that God graciously desires to give you the power to continue to be faithful. That's what he's praying for and that it's important. Um, let me explain why in, in greater detail. So if you look up just above our text here today at uh, verse 10 of chapter 3, 
It says, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we are called to put on Christ's image. Um, in other words, part of our growth in maturity is displaying God's character, his love, his kindness, his compassion, his meekness um, uh, toward other Christians. Uh, so this is both an obligation, because we're being commanded, we're expected to do it, but it is also a privilege um, of being in God's kingdom. Uh, for someone who struggles to feel loved by God, you can love them in the way that God does to help them understand and experience that. For someone who only sees self-promotion and pride as models for how people conduct themselves, you can commend yourself by steadfast humility. For someone who is treated roughly by their earthly family, you can put on God's heart of compassion and be gentle toward them. For someone who is struggling with a besetting sin, you can patiently encourage and exhort them to continue fighting it. And so it is imperative then that we grow in maturity because by it we will better represent Christ to our fellow believers. And by doing so, we will make him sweeter and more glorious to each other. Um, while this does seem daunting, this is why Paul placed such an emphasis on assurance in the previous chapter. If we know we are secure in our salvation in Christ, we know that even if we fail in doing this, um, if we get frustrated with one another, um, he is not going to cast us out of his kingdom. Uh, furthermore, our success in displaying him um, does not disqualify us, or, nor does it make us better if we are more successful. Um, because it is safe for us to fail, it does make it safer for us to try. So members of Christ's kingdom must grow in maturity together. They do this with the love of Christ and now under the peace of Christ. We're looking at verse 15. So Paul goes on to instruct the Colossians to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. So again, here's this kingdom language. Um, in Isaiah 9, 6, this is a very uh, familiar passage that gets read around Christmas. Isaiah prophesied that a son would be born of a virgin who one day would be called a prince of peace. Um, it, it's something that I think we, okay, I'll speak for myself at least. I kind of get numb. I've just heard that phrase so many times. Um, but Paul has already elaborated that the most important enemy um, prior to our salvation that we could have and once had is God. And so apart from Christ, we are people who rebel and we are at war constantly with the sovereign king and ruler of the universe. There's no peaceful secession by which you can establish your own kingdom and live peacefully side by side from God's reign. So the options are continued rebellion or joining God's kingdom. And that's what Christ's reconciling work on the cross did. And so Paul is saying, God loves you and forgave you while you were still in rebellion. You don't have to continue to fight fruitlessly to establish your own kingdom. You can see striving for those things because you are now in the greatest kingdom, and that kingdom is going to last for all eternity. And so let this sink down into your heart and control or rule your thoughts and actions. And so then having assurance with God is not just... Um, uh, knowing things uh, about 
how I'm saved and how I stay saved, but it's recognizing and resting in knowing that you do have peace with God. And you can have peace of mind knowing that you have peace with God. And so Paul then moves outward, saying that the Colossians are called to peace in one body. And so maybe that feels very obvious, but uh, you can have, you and I will have a very hard time maintaining peace with others if we do not have uh, peace in our hearts. Um, Paul, again, calls upon the word picture of a body to help describe the church. If one part of the body is at war with another, the whole body suffers rather than the whole body being aimed at one goal, and it becomes less effective because it is fighting itself. Um, and then Paul actually has a, uh, something helpful in Ephesians um, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, saying the same sort of thing uh, when he says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint um, sorry, with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when every part of the body is working, working towards um, uh, working in love toward one another, having peace with one another, it actually builds the body up in love. Um, so um, then I'd like to just bring in another dimension here to the rule aspect, um, which is Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, is currently reigning on his throne. While his enemies may still be active, nothing happens outside of his sovereign and ruling care. Uh, Psalm 2 tells us the nations rage and the, king, the kingdoms, uh, sorry, the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, but they have no hope of disrupting God's gracious reign. And so today we are people who serve and under a king who cannot be dethroned. And when you think about that, suddenly the small quarrels and divisions in our body um, can be put into perspective. Um, the battle with the highest stakes can't be lost, and so winning every battle for the sake of my pride is simply less important and less appealing. Um, note that the end of this verse calls the Colossians to be thankful. And then if you look down at the end of verse 16, it says to um, give thanks um, with other translations, depending on what you have, may say giving grace or having grace. And the end of verse 17 also mentions giving thanks. Um, and so these words, as well as the words for forgive in verse 13, all come from the same root word, uh, which is translated as grace in our Bibles. Uh, Paul could have actually used other words for forgive. Um, there are other words that are translated forgive uh, in the New Testament. But he chose to make uh, all of these words uh, clear so you would hear grace, 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 um, that forgiveness has come to us by God's grace, and so therefore we should overflow with thankfulness. Um, and uh, what, we'll then think, what we should then think is, um, how can I not be thankful when my eternal destiny is secure? How can I not be thankful that my Savior now is reigning in heaven and he is watching over me? and orchestrating things so that I might grow and glorify him. 
So at this point, you may be noticing a pattern in this text, which is there's, there's kind of a couple of sections where it starts with a vertical component. You have received something from God. You've received love from God. You've received peace from God. The next section is you've received the word of God. Um, and now this should come down and affect our hearts. And as it affects our hearts, it then should overflow um, in thankfulness and other actions to other believers as we help one another strive toward Christ together. So if I shorten that, being forgiven or shown grace leads to thankfulness, which leads to action towards others. Um, so members of Christ's kingdom must grow in maturity together. They do this now sharing the word of Christ. Um, real quick, if you're leading Bible study and using the questions um, that are on the program, um, I have a question about comparing Colossians 1.28 with 3.17. I meant to put 3.16. So, and I'll show you why. If you want to look at Colossians 1.28, Paul uses almost the exact same words um, in 1.28 to describe his ministry. So he says, Him we proclaim warning or admonishing, it's the same word, everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So then we hear here in uh, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing or warning one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Um, so uh, the, 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 this is where... Um, Right, the, the word admonish or warning, I think, can bring a little bit of balance to if you're starting to think, okay, well, everything's about just being loving and forgiving everyone and always smoothing things over. Um, Paul wants to uh, show that love and patience and forgiveness doesn't mean never correcting everyone. In fact, love also includes warning and teaching. Um, and so correction is commendable and commanded here. Um, but the way in which it is done should be shaped by um, the virtues that were previously listed. Um, I want to um, call out two things that are um, quite um, amazing about this verse. So first, Paul is telling the Colossians, him we proclaim, right, I, I teach and I warn people, and now you are doing the same thing. So you, um, your job is the same as my job. So Paul the Apostle is telling every person in the Colossian church, and I'll say, hey, we know for a fact that it's every person in the Colossian church because he's even telling children what to do in the following verses next week. So even children, you, are, you who are sitting here today, uh, your job is the same as Paul's job in some sense. Um, even though Paul, so, and probably Epaphras, because Epaphras is with him, is likely in jail, and elsewhere in the Bible it talks about Epaphras being in jail. Um, Paul, even though they're, they're, they're the big wigs, the big figures in their church are no longer there, Paul believes that they can and they should take on the responsibility to teach and correct one another about Christ. And so that the work of discipleship and maturity don't stop simply because the biggest figures in the church aren't around. Now, there are still leaders in the Colossian church. Uh, talks about Archippus at the end of the book. Paul kind of addresses him like he's a teacher in the church. 
but nobody in the church is off the hook from this command. And so while even right now at River Hills, we don't have two full-time pastors, ministry looks a little bit different, um, we still have the same call to teach and to warn or admonish brothers and sisters um, uh, can and should still happen um, so that our brothers and sisters and we might be more like Christ, even if each of us might be called and equipped in different ways, right? Some of us have been uh, in the faith for a very long time. Some of us have only been a couple of years, maybe even just a couple of months. Um, but each of us has something to contribute in this area. Um, the ultimate goal with all of this is that God's word would dwell in us richly, uh, that we might grow in wisdom or practical maturity. Um, the word picture of dwelling in richly is like a satisfying meal where you're very full, um, but you're not feeling gross after having uh, eaten it. So it's, the, it's, that, it's that sort of feeling. Um, hopefully it's something that you have after Thanksgiving, for example. Um, but uh, it's, it, the intent is that we might build one another up in Christ so that, that God's word would dwell in us and fill us and help us to feel satisfied in him. Um, so the second thing that's very interesting about these verses is that the primary way that Paul talks about executing this command with one another is by singing, singing, sorry. Um, in other places in Scripture, it's clear this isn't the only way to teach, but this is the one that he highlights here. Um, uh, Paul is saying that the word of Christ must dwell in you, and this is going to happen as we sing with one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and Commentators are a little split on what the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs include, but he is saying that all of them are about Christ and that the psalms also are. Um, so um, he is saying that even as you sing or if you read psalms with one another, we saw some of this um, when we had our sermon series in psalms, like Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, it's like, it's super obvious that they're about Christ, but... There are so many other areas in the Psalms where it is very clear um, about how we should live, who we should worship, and how it points to Christ. And um, Paul, Jesus even says uh, in Luke 24, 44 to some of his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so... Um, uh, I would like to make a couple of direct points of application about the songs we sing and why we sing and then what we're doing, what we sing um, through these verses. So firstly, this is kind of the obvious one, uh, songs in church that we sing should instruct us and correct our thinking to think the way that God thinks. Um, additionally, when we sing, we're not just solely singing just between me and God. We are also singing to each other um, and singing passionately, however that looks for each individual, is a means of encouragement that helps one another to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That We might have thankfulness in our hearts um, or have grace in our hearts. Um, um, so 
if you think about that, what that means then is that even if you are very young, if you're singing the words to the songs that we sing, you are encouraging someone who maybe, maybe your parents even, who are much older than you, um, uh, that you are bringing comfort and help to someone who you love and respect, even if you might not feel equipped to come and bring the word uh, of God to them in a different way. Um, uh, we should strive also not just to sing out of duty, but out of grace and thanks in our hearts. And so there are going to be days uh, when you feel like personally you can't do this. And this is again a benefit of corporate worship. Uh, sometimes uh, I will look around uh, when I'm singing and I look and I see um, a smile or a look of joy on a brother or sister's face and that brings me encouragement even in times where I feel like maybe I'm struggling to feel the words of that song personally. And so this is part of what it means to be a body or a family is that it's okay to look around and get encouragement from one another. Um, the next, um, singing songs that come directly from God's word. Um, we have a couple of these in our repertoire, um, such as Psalms, but other ones that are just like sets of verses that are basically set to music is a very good way to, for God's word to dwell in your heart richly. You've probably already figured out that um, songs help you remember things. You think about the ABCs, why we teach kids the ABCs to a melody. It helps them to remember them. Um, I have no illusions that you may walk out of here today uh, and you're probably more likely to be singing Jesus, thank you, or before the throne of God above to yourself than you are to be like humming the sermon points here today. Um, and, and, and that's because God has wired us to have song help things go into our minds and sit in our hearts. Um, and, and so lastly, um, we are not only singing the music that we like um, because we like that particular song or because it makes us happy. Um, a song that you don't care for may deeply minister to another saint or vice versa. Uh, there are songs that we sing here, some of which I'm not the biggest fan of, but I look around and I see someone else joyfully engaging in that song and so I can sing confidently even if it's not my favorite because I know that someone else is being blessed by me singing the truths of that song. Um, um, so while singing is a different kind of ministry of doing God's word, or sorry, um, sorry, let me totally mangled what I was trying to say. While uh, singing is a different ministry of God's word than preaching or doing a Bible study um, or reading on your own, it is still a very vital way, and that's why Paul highlights it as a way that God's word dwells in us and reigns in our hearts in a way that we can help others to have the same happen. So lastly, uh, members of Christ's kingdom must grow in maturity together, and so they do this in the name of Christ. Um, Paul wraps up and summarizes what he's been saying so far, saying, whatever you do in word or deed. So his point is, okay, I've listed out some things that could be specific, but they also could be very general and comprehensive, and he, then he just says, I didn't list everything. Whatever you do in word or deed, um, you should be doing this um, in the name of Jesus or in, um, as a representative of his kingdom. Um, and so therefore, um, this does give additional responsibility to our actions and words. 
Um, and, and you think maybe if you're, uh, if you're driving a car with your company's logo on it, you might be more careful to obey the speed limit or to not honk angrily at someone in front of you because you know that you're actually going to reflect on your company when you do that. So similarly, um, Paul is upping the ante of that illustration and saying everything that you're doing is a, as a representative of Jesus. Um, and so, but pa, um, pastorally, Paul again roots this admonition um, in giving thanks to God for the grace that he has shown us in Jesus. And so um, he's doing this to say that it's not just you better be scared because God is watching everything that you're going to do. But he has given you grace. You are a member of his kingdom. Um, you do not need to worry um, that you might lose your place in his kingdom. And so therefore you can feel confident that um, as I go out, even if I fail at representing him well um, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, Christ is still uh, reigning on his throne. And it's not because of our work, but it's because of his. And so one day, uh, we know that uh, uh, Christ will return. He will call each one of us home or to his side, or, or sorry, Christ will either call us to his side or he will return for each one of us. And at that time, we will be changed for we will see him as he is. So in that day, our maturity will be complete, but even today, we might strive for progress. Um, but uh, in another sense, I will say that we will continue growing in our love and our affection for the Savior, even when he makes us like he is. Um, there is, though, I would say, a solemn warning here in these verses um, for those who are not in Christ. So if you recall, I started um, right before the sermon talking about Psalm 110. Uh, Christ is sitting at the Father's right hand until he makes his enemies his footstool. Those who have not yet been reconciled to him who have not made peace with God by confessing Jesus as Lord and trusting in his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins will one day be made Christ's footstool. They will be judged when he returns. And so I would plead with you, if you have not turned to Christ here today, that I would plead with you, join the great kingdom of this gracious king. If you want to talk with me after the service or if you want to talk with one of the elders or someone else you know, uh, I would encourage you to do that. Um, and we have seen today that there are many ways in which we can and should grow into Christ's image and how we can help others to do the same. Um, I'd like to leave you with one final encouragement in this department. We are all in this together with one another, and yet none of us is sufficient individually for this task, nor are we actually sufficient corporately for it. Thankfully, we have a Father in heaven who loves us, a son who is ruling and interceding for us at his right hand, and the Holy Spirit who has written the word of God on our heart and who is changing us to be more like Christ day by day. So then may we lean on the power of the triune God and spur one another on to love and good works. Please pray with me. God, I pray uh, you would help us um, to see the value of growing in maturity, of resting in you, of expressing love for one another, um, even when it is difficult for us. I pray that you would do this so we might display Christ to one another, um, that we might see him as more glorious, and that we might be able to, as we share the word with one another, see the depths uh, from which we were saved and see the glories of being in your eternal kingdom. 
And so I pray that we might do all these things uh, for your glory and for our joy and for our good and for one another's good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.